welcome. You found the People of Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab, and today on the show, I have Monty Brewer. Monty has a fascinating story as he guides me through his life throughout this podcast. He was raised in Alton Park by his single mother. He became the first African-American to graduate from Baylor High School. He then moved on to Harvard to graduate with a degree in economics, and he came back to Chattanooga to work with the Lubton family in Coca-Cola. He started working in a manager's training program and moved all the way up to becoming the assistant to the vice president of marketing for Coca-Cola in Texas. From there, he became the consumer marketing manager for Florida Coke, where he experienced racism and discrimination, even as he was one of the most important people at the plant. His list of accomplishments do not end there, as his resume and life experiences are staggering. And now he aims to become the next mayor of Chattanooga. We talk about the shrinking of the middle class, the growth of our city, our schools, and much more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Monty Brewer. And we are recording. I'm here with Monte Brule. Did I get that right? Uh, close enough. Can you uh, can you can you uh, say it yourself? Monte Brule. Perfect. Nice. How are you doing this morning? I am doing great, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's another good morning here in Chattanooga. Absolutely. So, um, can you tell me? Um, did you were you born and raised in Chattanooga? Yes, I was uh, born and raised in Alton Park in East Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, when when was that? What year? So uh, I was born in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, uh, in a few days, I will turn 59. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Um, some birthdays coming up. Um, what was it like growing up in, you, were you born in, in Alton Park? Well, born uh, in uh, Erlanger Hospital mm-hmm. uh, here, and uh, my family lived in Alton Park. What was Alton Park like um, back then in the 60s? So I'm going to go a little further back than that. My grandparents uh, moved to Alton Park, and I don't even know what year they moved there. It must have been the early 1950s to the mid-1950s, and Alton Park was all white. Then. Mm, no kidding. In fact, uh, they lived on Highland Avenue uh, a couple of doors down from Union Grove Baptist Church, and on the other street, this one street over on Kirkland Avenue, the mayor of Chattanooga lived, uh, Mayor Old Jotty. So, th- so Alton Park was a much different neighborhood when my uh, grandparents bought the house. But of course, uh, when they moved in, and and uh, that that triggered white flight out of Alton Park, and so Alton Park transitioned over the next. 10 years to being a neighborhood that was all African-American. So when I was growing up, there were, I can't recall there being uh, any uh, white people who lived in the neighborhood. Oh, now, wow. there were merchants who owned, you know, grocery stores or a dry cleaner or something like that who were white. Uh, but all of my, my neighbors were African-American. Uh, and it was a great place to to grow up. It was a, just a regular neighborhood. I r- would ride my bike all over the place. And, uh, uh, and, and that was, you know, that, that was a fun childhood for me. Now, in retrospect, when I think about Alton Park, I realize 
that my family lived about three blocks from the Chattanooga Glass Company that made Coca-Cola bottles. But I didn't know a single person who had one of those good-paying manufacturing jobs at Chattanooga Glass because there were no African-Americans or very few African-Americans who worked there. Mm. Workers came from, you know, North Georgia, other parts of town, uh, but, uh, but I didn't know a single person who had one of those jobs. I also, even though I could smell the pollution from Velsicol, Chemical, and other places, I had no idea that uh, that we were all being poisoned uh, while I was growing up there. I had asthma as a child. Wow. Uh, when 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 I was little, you know, sometimes I would have an asthma attack in the middle of the night, and we didn't have a car, and so my mother would desperately call around to all of the people that she knew who had a car who might be able to take me to the emergency room. And then once you got that person, you, maybe they had gas in their car. Maybe they didn't have enough gas in their car. So that was, you know, that was what it was like growing up in Alton Park when I was a child. Yeah, that sounds rough. Um, what did they have inhalers back then? Uh, they did. They did. They okay. did. Primatine mist. That's what it was called. <laughs> yes. Did Did you get over your asthma? I did. I did eventually. I, I still have, you know, allergies and some respiratory issues, but I don't have asthma anymore. What, um, what exactly is asthma? Wow, I'm not a doctor. Uh, it's, it really is a constriction of, of the lungs. You, you feel like you, you, you're, you're losing lung capacity, so you're trying to take a breath, but mm-hmm. you don't have enough room in your chest and your lungs to, to take a full breath. And then that induces wheezing. So, so, so you know, the, the more you're trying to breathe, the more stress you're under, and so the worse it gets. It's, it's really very scary. You, you really think you're going to suffocate when you're having a severe asthma attack. That, and then on top of that, the pollution you were talking about, um, from the chemical company. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Um, so your grandparents moving into the neighborhood um, was, was kind of a catalyst to change the neighborhood dynamics? Uh, I won't say that uh, they specifically, but they, as I said, they were among the very first African-Americans to live in Alton Park. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so they were part of that first wave of African-Americans living there. And that certainly prompted the white people to, to head other places. My mother, actually, uh, her best friend was a white girl who lived next door. And they, they were inseparable. Uh, but her family moved, I think, to Lookout Valley, oh. and uh, they tried to maintain the relationship, and the people would come and get my mother as a little girl, and, and she would have to lie down on the floorboard of the car uh, because they thought that the neighbors in Lookout Valley you know, might be violent. Uh, and my grandfather finally said, look, I don't want my daughter... Uh, experiencing that kind of trauma and putting her at risk that way so that she lost that friendship when that white family moved away man that's horrible yeah um in alton park did the um economic um was it uh like rich white at the when your grandparents moved in or is it uh poor or middle class i would say it was middle class middle class um mayor old was uh-huh. not a wealthy man i don't believe he I, I think he worked for the city of chattanooga uh was over the public works department and then decided to run for mayor and was elected so so it wasn't like he was living in you know riverview or, or, or someplace like that it was just a solid middle class neighborhood yeah 
Okay. So um, did you live in Alton Park all the way through going up to um, high school? Oh, no. No. Okay. So I lived in, in Alton Park uh, until the third grade, the middle of third grade. And my mother and I uh, moved to Muncie, Indiana. Oh. And we lived in Muncie, Indiana for a couple of years. Uh, during that time, unfortunately, my grandfather passed away. And uh, my mother uh, decided that we should come back to Chattanooga to be closer to my grandmother. And that's what we did. Uh, I lived in Alton Park again there. I went to Calvin Donaldson uh, Elementary. And uh, when I was maybe in the sixth grade, I think, uh, we moved to City View Apartments in East Chattanooga. And we, we lived there until I was 14. And my mother uh, uh, remarried, married my stepfather, uh, to whom she's uh, married to, to this day. And we moved to uh, uh, Eastdale off of Wilcox Boulevard in a subdivision called Rollingwood. I lived on Wandale Trail there. And, uh, and that's where I lived until I went to college. Okay. And um, where did you end up going to college? I went to Harvard. Oh, very good. Yeah. Congratulations. The small little liberal arts college in yep. the Northeast. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, what did you study there? Economics. Economics. Okay. Um, what was your college experience like? Wow. It was, it was unlike anything uh, that I had had before. Uh, you know, a lot of people go on college visits when they are in high school trying to decide uh, where they you know, want to go. Uh, my family couldn't really afford for me to go to Boston to visit Harvard, so I went on reputation alone. alone. It's where I'd always wanted to go to school, uh, and we'll we'll get into that story. That's your childhood dream, is yeah. going to Harvard? Well, you know, so when I was in the seventh grade, I entered Baylor, and okay. I was, I'm the first African-American graduate of Baylor. Oh, congratulations. So, so, and, and no one in my family had gone to college before. And shortly after becoming a Baylor student, people started asking me, so where do you want to go to college? And I had never really given it any thought. So it was improbable that I was, going to be, that I was at Baylor in the first place. So I would ask, what's the best college? And somebody said, well, I think Harvard. I said, well, I guess that's where I'll go. <laughs> and, and every year when the uh, admissions officer from Harvard came to visit, I would be in that group with the juniors and the seniors. So there'd be the seventh grader sitting in that meeting, then the next year is an eighth grader, then the following year is a ninth grader. Uh, the, admiss the admissions officer was named David Evans. When I was a, uh, uh, a, a junior, he said, Monty, I am so glad that it's time for you to apply. You know, <laughs> we've been doing this dance for a long time now. <laughs> were, there, were there other younger kids, seventh, eighth grade, sitting in these meetings, or is it just you? Uh, with just the, me. That's hilarious. Just me. Um, what made you want to um, think of doing that strategy? That's a wonderful strategy. What made you think of that? Well, just like a lot of things in life, I believe that, you know, getting into college is about relationship as much as it is about academic, you know, excellence. Um, I was doing very well academically, so that box was checked. 
But I wanted the Harvard admissions people to be able to put my face to the name on the application. And when they saw, oh, Monty Brule's applying, that's that crazy kid from Chattanooga, right? So, so I was just building a relationship. I took five years to build a relationship with the Harvard admissions office. Man, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> that's, it's very true. It's um, not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. Right. So that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, so you got into Harvard yep. and you studied economics. Mm-hmm. Um, were you always interested in economics or how did that come about? I was not necessarily always interested in economics. I have always been interested in what motivates people and, and why people do the things they do. Uh, and when I was a freshman, I took the introductory uh, economics class called Ec-10 and uh, it's the largest uh, class at Harvard. It has like 800 people in it. I mean, it's a huge class. Uh, and I just became fascinated uh, because economics is all about how we value things, um, you know, why we think one thing is more valuable than another thing. Uh, for, for example, I was having a conversation recently about... Um, you know, what would be valuable if our financial system collapsed? Uh, should we go to the bank and take out all the, the dollars and, and, you know, put it in a closet in the house? Should we buy gold? Uh, I said, well, actually, if the financial system collapsed, collapses, the dollars won't be worth anything because they're only backed by the uh, good faith and credit of the U.S. government. Which, and, which changed, and what, what year did that change? I don't know exactly when that, that changed, but I'm, I'm going to say it was probably the, uh, the, the late 1800s when we moved away from a gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, that's, if, if that dire circumstance were to happen, I said the most valuable commodity in the world will be water. Water's good, yeah. yeah. You can't eat a gold bar. You can't eat paper money. So, so if in a true collapse of the financial system, I would want to stockpile water. Water, yeah. Yeah, it goes down to your basic needs. So yeah. water, food, shelter. That kind of stuff. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So that's my interest in economics. You, you can have all kinds of fascinating conversations when you throw economics in the mix. Yeah, I, well, I'm interested in incentives, and that's right up the economic bandwagon. So, right, right. Yeah, excellent. Um, so you graduated from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Did you get a minor in anything? I did not. Okay, major in economics. Major in economics. And where did you move from there? So... Um, you're probably familiar with the Lupton family in Chattanooga. I've heard of them. Yeah. Uh, Jack Lupton. So, so the Luptons were the original Coca-Cola bottlers. Okay. And uh, when I was uh, a junior at Harvard, uh, I wrote to Jack Lupton and, and asked if I could have a summer job. Just out of the blue. Just out of the blue. Man, I like your style. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. And, and, and Jack said, okay, I'll give you a try. Yeah. So the summer between my uh, junior year and my senior year, I worked at their headquarters in the Crystal Building, uh, which is now, I guess, the uh, UBS building uh, downtown at the corner of Broad and MLK. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that went well. 
And at the end of the summer, uh, Jack said, well, you know, if you would like to come work for us when you graduate, I'm willing to offer you a job. And I said, absolutely, I, I would love that. So during the course of that year, uh, you know, I thought that I would be coming back to work at headquarters, at, you know, at JTL. But Jack said, you know what, you can't manage something that you've never worked in. And, and it would be unreasonable for us to think that you're going to be successful in Coca-Cola bottling if you've never worked in a bottling plant. So I, uh, they assigned me to Houston Coca-Cola, which is uh, a company that JTL, uh, the company, owned. And I spent two and a half years working at Houston Coca-Cola, learning every aspect of bottling. I worked every job in the plant from, from third shift janitorial to spending the day with the president of Houston Coke. Wow. Now, was that in Houston, Texas? Yes. Is that, okay. Yes. That's fantastic. I like that. You had, you had to have boots on the ground. You had to really um, know the business before you kind of earned your whatever, yeah. higher positions. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you go down the beverage aisle in the grocery store, all the cans are facing the same way mm -hmm. so that you can see the labels. Now they may have some fancy automated system for doing that now, but when I was doing it, you had to do it manually. It was called facing the cans. And so if you think about someone actually twisting every can that's sitting on the, the shelf in the grocery store, I would go home at night and have nightmares about facing cans. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any OCD in you from, from that? Or? <laughs> I, I, I don't. <laughs> um, what's it like to, to work in a bottling factory? Oh, it's it's amazing. It's it's kind of like you know Willy Wonka and the, you know the chocolate factory. You know your, the smells. Every flavor has a different smell. Like my favorite was Sprite. I loved it when we were making Sprite. That that lemon lime flavor would be all through the the air there. But the cans are whizzing by at you know two thousand a minute. You know, I mean a really blistering speed. Uh, and it's cold because you don't want the you don't want the liquid to foam up. Mm -hmm. You know, when you pour Coke in a uh, in a glass, it gets that kind of head on it. Yeah. Well, the same thing happens if you're filling it at a warm temperature. So you're filling at about thirty six degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so that uh, you're getting just the liquid inside the the cans, and you're not uh, you're not getting any foam. Are the bottles or cans cold too to match the liquid? Uh, so they they are the bottles are actually cool. The cans are being filled at at whatever the room temperature is. Yeah, it's more about the temperature of the liquid. Um, did you ever see any um, accidents happen with all those cans flying around? Um, <laughs> any crazy stories there? With um, I can't say that I ever saw any real accidents. The the worst thing that really could happen in that process is at the very end, the cases are coming off the line and they're being stacked on pallets. And there's a machine called the palletizer that builds those pallets. And it's a totally automated process. But occasionally, the palletizer would break down. And the guy operating that, that piece of machinery would have to manually build the packets. If you can remember uh, I Love Lucy and the scene with Lucy and Ethel in the chocolate factory and the, and, the, and the chocolates are coming fast and furious and they're trying to put them in the box but they they can't get all the chocolates in the box that's what happens when the palletizer breaks down and and so if i'm if i were happened to be walking through the manufacturing plant and the palletizer would break down there was a button 
and the guy would hit the button and a siren would go off because that meant, you know, the stuff was hitting the fan (laughs) on the back end of the process. And so that oftentimes, you know, I'm wearing a suit and tie. I would just throw my suit jacket off and jump and start helping stack pallets. Nice. How how long um, did you did you work all these positions before you became the plant manager? What was that? Well, I I, I never was the plant manager, but uh, I, I spent I spent nine months in that training program working every job. Mm. And then at the end of the nine months, I became assistant to the vice president of marketing. Oh, nice. Um, Assistant to the vice president of marketing. Um, What did that job look like? Well, that was a super fun job uh, because Coca-Cola is a consumer-driven company. And, And so we got to sponsor lots of events. Uh, we sponsored the Houston Astros, the Houston Rockets, so I got to see uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know games that way. We had the Coca-Cola concert series, so I, I saw a lot of great music during that time. Um, but on the other side of that, you're you know you're negotiating uh, deals with supermarket chains like you know Publix. Uh, 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 and marketing at Houston Coke was really the liaison between um, uh, that operation and Coca-Cola USA, you know, the, the parent company in Atlanta. Uh, so that was a great position. I, I got to have a lot of fun, but I also learned a lot about business. When when you're market when you're I'm um, negotiating with grocery store contracts, are you um, negro- negotiating the um, wholesale prices or um, location that the cans and bottles sit in the store, such as the front, or what they can have for the lowest sale price, things like that. All of the above. Um, Houston Coke was in an interesting position in that we had the highest market share of any bottler in the United States. We had about sixty-five percent market share. In in most markets, the top brands are Coke followed by Pepsi. Yeah. In Houston, the the brands were Coke followed by Diet Coke. Oh, cool! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, that 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 was a really you know cool experience. Do you remember when the Coca Cola, um, the polar bears showed up for all the marketing? Were you were you the mastermind behind that? I was. Uh, I wasn't the mastermind. I certainly remember that. We we had all kinds of promotions about that. But I will tell you. The worst thing that happened when I was there was I, that was when Coca-Cola decided to get rid of the old formula and bring out new Coke. And my boss thought it would be really fun if I were the person who had to take all the phone calls from all of the people <laughs> complaining. I've never been called so many bad names in my entire life as when I was was taking the complaint calls for, for new Coke. There's some Coke loyalists out there for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. That didn't last very long at all. We, we went Did back. you guys switch back? Oh, yeah. We okay. switched back. We switched back. Uh, yeah. Um, um, so... Um, what do, what do you do? What do you? I mean, you probably can't. You might not even know. But um, that wasn't like the whole uh, uh, corn syrup versus cane sugar thing, was it? No, no. Uh, I, you know, I'm talking more about bottling today than I've talked about it in you know 20 years. But yeah. uh, the the primary. You, do you remember the Pepsi challenge? Or have you I heard think of the I pep- do. Well, I think so. Yeah. Remind so, me. So. So when you drink uh, a Coke or a Pepsi, there's a certain mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. And most people 
think that one is more carbonated than the other. Like people think Coke is more carbonated than Pepsi. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but it's not the carbonation. It's the citric acid that gives you that mouthfeel. And Pepsi has a lower citric acid content than Coca-Cola. So that's why they were winning the uh, Pepsi challenge so much. When you take a sip of Pepsi, it's very smooth. Mm-hmm. And you take, a, uh, you, you take a sip of Coke, it's got a little bite to it. Well, that's comparing sip for sip. That's not comparing drinking a whole can of one to drinking a whole can of the other. Sure. And the fact of the matter is, is that people find the Coke more refreshing when they're drinking the whole glass or the whole can. That makes sense because uh, the carbonation is wearing out, wearing off, and that citric can help that towards the last couple sips. Doesn't taste as flat, maybe. Right. And if you're drinking it with food, I mean, yeah. sp- say spicy food, you know, the Coke stands up better than the Pepsi. Well, I like that. the Coke much better than the Pepsi for sure. Well, you're in Chattanooga. You better say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's true i also like sprite um what do you what about verners what do you know what gives verners that Ooh, you know? i have i have no idea about verners okay <laughs> okay well that we'll save that for another day yeah. the verners yeah um so how long were you in uh houston for i was there two and a half years okay Fantastic. And then when I uh, left Houston, I'm, I was transferred to Florida Coca-Cola. So then I worked for Florida Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Um, were you doing um, the marketing there as well? I was the consumer marketing manager for Florida Coke. So all of those uh, promotions, the event sponsorships, all of those things, that's what I did in Florida. Are the Coke drinkers different in Florida than in, in Texas? Sure, um, because there are so many northern, you know, transplants in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and Pepsi is dominant in a lot of northern markets, and so when people move to to Florida, they they may typically be a Pepsi drinker, and we have to work a little hard harder to convert them. Huh. What were some of your strategies? <laughs> Well, the main strategy is to lock down distribution. You can't yeah. you can't buy what's not available, right? <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's number one economics. Number one, get rid of the competition. Yeah, if if you're thirsty and then what you want isn't there, well, you'll start drinking what what is there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. Um, Florida, how long did that last for? Too long. Too long. Too okay. long. Uh, I, just to be honest, Florida is where I learned a lot about discrimination and racism. Okay. Uh, I was the only African American manager at Florida Coke. And you think about the whole state of Florida Mm -hmm. in the, uh, in the mid 19, mid to late 1980s. And there's not a single other African American in management in this company. Sure. And I will tell you, those people worked every day to make my life hell. What what were they? What are some examples? What would they do? Oh, you know, notes left on my car windshield. Oh, jeez. Um, uh, my boss would every day. Uh, uh, well, that's an exaggeration. Not every day, but a couple of times a week, my boss would uh, invite everybody in the department, which was about twelve people. Uh, to lunch other than me and the whole department would get up and go and le- leave to eat lunch and leave me sitting there by myself that's um man i don't even have any words that's disgusting and horrible um how did you 
how did you get the job there then if that was the culture? Well, again, they were owned by the Lupton family. Mm-hmm. And, and so they didn't really have a choice of whether I was coming or not. You just got uh, transferred. I just got and transferred. And that was the environment you were in. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so our market share in Houston was, as I said, about 65% of the, of the market. The market share of Houston, I'm sorry, of Florida Coke was about 40%. And, and so when I went to interview with the president of Florida Coke, uh, he made me wait even to see him. And, and they gave me a car and suggested that, that I go out and tour the market, take, go to grocery stores and, and, and take a look at the, the beverage aisles and that kind of thing. So I came back to, to meet with the, uh, uh, the president and he looked at me and he said, we don't have any ivy league people at florida coke and we certainly don't have any black people at florida coke so why do you even want to be here and uh i said well it's not that i want to be here you need me to be here i just came from a supermarket and i've never seen so much pepsi in my whole life i want to show you how to get some market share yeah and he goes i heard you had a mouth on you boy huh and that was the beginning of my relationship with the guy uh, who was the president of Florida Coke. As, as I said, it was an education for me in more ways than one. It made me strong. It, it, it opened my eyes to what people of color, uh, particularly African-Americans, go through every day. Um, racism doesn't always show up wearing a, a hood and a robe. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more subtle and, and insidious than that. And we have systemic racism. It's just built into everyday life. And, uh, you know, to, to, to flip this conversation a little bit, that's why I'm so passionate about being the next mayor of Chattanooga. Everyone in this city deserves a chance. And historically, they haven't gotten it. Uh, I, I want to be the mayor who delivers for all people, not just for a few people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, do you want to continue talking about the mayor stuff or, I, whether, or Florida? Hey, or? hey, you're the boss. It's your show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having a conversation. Well, uh, well, if, if you're giving me the liberty, um, I'm curious um, uh, if, if we're talking about uh, racial things, um, what was it? Did you notice the, uh, the Cuban population, how, how that was in Florida? Um, were there many Cubans working at your plant? How, can you tell me some about that? So Florida is an interesting place. North Florida, you know, Jacksonville and the Panhandle, Tallahassee, that's more like lower Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, there, there's not a huge Latinx influence in, in North Florida. And then the, more, the, the further south you go, the more you, you see uh, a Latinx population. Yeah. 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 Where was the plant that you're working at? Um, well, our headquarters were in Daytona beach. Okay. Uh, uh, but we had major, uh, operations in Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, and of course Miami. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, um, from here, from there you went, how, okay. So you're in Florida for way too long as you put it. Uh-huh. And then what was next with your career? Uh, after that, I went to work for Marriott. Okay. Um, Marriott had 207,000 employees worldwide. 
and they um, they had something called the guarantee of fair treatment uh, that that every uh, Marriott property had posted, and they wanted to see how they could increase employee satisfaction. So they wanted to hire a consumer marketing person to come in and essentially market the company to its own employees. Uh, so that's why I got that job. So I moved from marketing to human resources, uh, but I was essentially doing a marketing job inside of human resources, if you will. Mm-hmm. Were you still living in Florida for that? No, I moved to uh, Marriott's corporate headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. So I lived in D.C. and worked in Bethesda. Was that a welcome relief to get out of Florida? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't leave Florida soon enough. Yeah. And again, had nothing to do with Florida, had everything to do with Florida Coca-Cola. Sure. I understand that. Yeah. So now you're in Maryland. And um, how long did that last for? I was there about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the opportunity presented itself for me to move back to Chattanooga. And, uh, and I was very happy to do that because there are a lot of exciting things were going on at that time. This would have been like 1988. Okay. And in 1984, there was a community uh, goal setting process called Vision 2000. And the community came together and, and said, this is what we want our city to be like. And so the riverfront development, uh, the, uh, the river park came out of Vision 2000. The Tennessee Aquarium came out of Vision 2000. A lot of really exciting things. And, you know, the people who were involved in that said, Monty, you know, what are you doing in D.C.? You, you need to come back home and be a part of all this change that's going on. And, and that's why I wanted to, to come back. After Vision 2000, uh, they said, the community said, we need someone to be responsible for all of these goals. And so an organization called Chattanooga Venture was created. And... Uh, I believe that I was the third chairman of Chattanooga Venture. Uh, Maybell Hurley would have been the first chair, Rick Montague, the second chair. And then I think I, I oh, I know I followed Rick. At, uh, <laughs> uh, but I think I was the third person who was chair of Chattanooga Venture. And, and I was chair when we got to cross off the last of those goals. I think there were 49 goals, something like that. And, and so I, I, was, I was the person who helped take it across the finish line. Oh, wow, that's super cool. What was the last goal? Oh, I couldn't even tell you today. Uh, but they were all neighborhood focused. They were they were um, mostly about how we took power away from that elite group of you know people downtown who mm-hmm. called all of the shots, and how we gave power back to ordinary people who lived in neighborhoods. So we formed a lot of neighborhood associations. One of the the things uh, of which I'm most proud is we created a neighborhood association in the Harriet Tubman Public Housing Development. It was the first time that that the residents of public housing in Chattanooga had been treated like they lived in a real neighborhood and that they had power over what happened in their neighborhood. Uh, so so we did a lot of fun things like that. And 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 I kind of smile today, you know, when I when I see people at city council meetings uh, complaining and and when I see protesters. Uh, I think all of that started with Chattanooga Venture. People today may not realize the connection, 
But if you go back to a pre-Chattanooga Venture world, nobody went to city council meetings to complain. There were, there were not many kinds of organized protest. Um, I, I feel good about being part of, of changing the culture so that citizens feel more empowered today. And, and we've got to get citizens to be even more engaged than they, they already are. Can you explain what a neighborhood association is and what its, um, what its purpose is? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. A, a neighborhood association is just a group of people who, who live in a particular area who come together to, to create a vision for what they want their neighborhood to be. And, you know, imagine just sitting in your house, not ever having meetings with your neighbors and, and wondering, you know, am I the only person who feels this way? You know, Am I the only one bothered by that noise that's coming from across the street? Uh, uh, but when you have an association, you can come together, express how you're feeling, and and set priorities. And then, as an association, you can you can petition government because the association represents votes. When you're by yourself, you're just one vote. But if you take all your neighbors with you, you might be a hundred votes, and that's how you get things done. Um, was was that position that you held um, as a chairman? Was that a paid position? No, it's a volunteer, volunteer position. And then, so what else were you doing um, to to make some money at the time? I was doing a couple of things. I um, I was a marketing consultant, so I, I worked uh, uh, for clients, helping them develop strategies to to either reach particular audiences or, or to grow their businesses in particular ways. And sometimes that's about optimizing your uh, your your business model. Um, sometimes businesses are trying to be all things to all people, and they're just not doing any of it very well. So so you know having the best marketing plan isn't always about growth sometimes it's about optimization and then i was in the uh, construction business for uh, a couple of years uh, uh, building fast food restaurants for fast food companies so we worked for mcdonald's taco bell kfc and you know restaurants like that yeah Man, you've have uh, quite the portfolio so far, and we're not even we're not even <laughs> close to being done. Oh, oh no, my my resume looks like somebody who could couldn't hold a job. No, I, I've I've done a lot of different things. I love that because you have so much experience and seen so many different um, things and places, and um, it's very interesting to me. I've had a lot of fun. That's good. Well, speaking of fun, we haven't even talked about uh, your hobbies. We mostly talked about your work. What? Um, <laughs> Did you do you have any sports that you like to play or what do you like to do for fun? Um, well, I, I think that I really love travel. Travel yeah. would be my my number one hobby. And, you know, in this pandemic, we're not doing much of that. No, shut down. Um, I also uh, love uh, trying new restaurants and we're not doing a lot of that right now. So my my hobbies are pretty much on lockdown at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but I do like to cook. So I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, cooking and uh, and running for office is, is 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 not a hobby, but it is a very enriching and fulfilling experience because I get to meet people, you know, like you yeah. uh, that I might not otherwise have ever met. And, and so when I come out of this on March the 3rd, you know, the day after the election, win, lose, or draw, my life is going to be so much richer because I will know so many more people. 
That's wonderful. Um, and that's secretly why I do this podcast so I can talk to people like you <laughs> that would normally, I wouldn't have the opportunity to. So, um, I totally understand that. That's wonderful. Um, with the traveling, um, do you like to travel domestically or internationally or all of the above? Where, where uh, are some of the places you've gone? So uh, most recently, uh, my fiance and I uh, have been to both Australia and France, and uh, and we're glad we got those trips out of the way because, as I said, they're not happening now. Uh, I actually was in France. Well, we were both in France on March the the twelfth when the uh, shutdown order came from from the White House, and so there was some. Uh, uh, concern that we might not make it back into the country but we did it was it was all fine you didn't have to change your plane ticket yet well i i didn't my fiance did because she was planning on staying two weeks longer because her her daughter lives in france that's why we were there it wasn't like it was just a big vacation it was it was to visit uh sophia and uh and and so uh Amanda was going to stay a couple of weeks just so that she could have some one-on-one time with her daughter. And I was coming home. So I came home on March the 12th and she was stuck. She did have to change her travel plans. And, and it wasn't just about, uh, uh, being able to get out of France. Uh, you know, unlike in the U S the French government took control and president Macron, uh, locked the whole country down and and that meant shutting down the rail system, shutting down the buses. Uh, you know, she didn't know if she was going to make it to Paris. We were we were in Bordeaux at the time, and she didn't know if she'd make it back to Paris even to get on a plane. Um, and I believe that what happened was she ended up flying out of Bordeaux to Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam to Atlanta, and that's how she got back home. Wow, that's a frightening experience. Right yeah, there. yeah. Wow. Um, Man, I'm, that's that's uh, that's pretty scary. Um, Australia, you did Australia. Australia was great, uh, and that was when they were having the huge, you know, the fires. fires. Yeah. Uh, now we were in Sydney, and and you know the fires weren't really near us, but there, I mean there were days when you could smell smoke in the air. Uh, but just like we were in France to visit Amanda's daughter, we were in Australia to visit one of her sons, uh, who's living and working there. Uh, and, and, and so before the pandemic, you know, we had this opportunity to go spend time, you know, with family and, uh, and that's, that's really, you know, a great thing because now, uh, Jack and Sophia can't really travel back here and we certainly can't travel there. So it was, it's good that we had some family time. Yeah. I'm glad you got to do it while you can. And that's a good reminder. Everyone needs to travel or in general, do, do whatever you can while you can. Yeah. You know, yeah. But for me, I don't need to go to France or Australia to, to enjoy travel. I, you know, I enjoy just going for a weekend in Atlanta or, yeah. or Nashville. Uh, we were just we just drove to Austin, Texas, uh, oh, wonderful place, uh, a while back. I, I, I like Austin, um, and and sometimes Amanda and I will just hop in the car on a Sunday afternoon and and go driving. You know, I remember my grandparents and you know saying, "Hey, let's go for a drive," and we would just get in the car and drive around. And and now in this pandemic, when we can't do much, that's one of the things that uh, we enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, 
about the cooking. What's your uh, what? <laughs> What's your, what's your specialty? What what can you whip up in the kitchen? Well, I I don't know that I I have a real specialty, but I will. T- what we're kind of hung up on right now is uh, uh, we we both love salmon, and oh. and and so I I have a pretty spot on way of of making salmon come out perfect every time, and. Uh, and then I've I've started making chimichurri. What's you know, chimichurri? It, it is uh, an Argentinian condiment that uh, has parsley and garlic and uh, um, shallot in it, mm-hmm. uh, a, little, a little red pepper flake and olive oil and and red wine vinegar. So uh, Australians, Argentina, uh, Argentinians yeah. put it on everything, and and so last night. We had salmon with chimichurri on top of oh, it. Oh, that sounds fantastic! So, so yeah, I am a savory guy. I'm not a baker, so don't don't ask me to bake you a cake or or a pie or anything like that. But as long as it's on the savory side, I can whip it up for you. Um, so I have to let you know, um, full disclosure, I'm a commercial salmon fisherman. Oh, that's my occupation. So I run a boat in Alaska every summer and catch sockeye salmon. That's awesome. So um, now I've got a source. I've got a connection. <laughs> I got some in my freezer that I, that I caught with these bare hands. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. is so cool. Yep. Yep. That's what I do. So, um, um, no, we, I've got to flip the interview Go here. Go for it. So how, how, how do you become a salmon fisherman in Alaska and, oh, and you're living in Chattanooga? That's a great question. Um, so when I was uh, 18 years old, I came from northern Michigan, so I'm a Michigander. Um, I was visiting my grandma, and she told me about uh, that I had a third cousin named Heath, um, Keith Whittern, who I've never met, and he bought a fishing boat in Alaska. And I came from a r- real poor uh, northern Michigan family, and uh, we didn't have m- much opportunities. And uh, so I jumped on this one, and I asked him if I could, called him up, cold called him, hey, can I, do you need some work, you know? can I work for you? And he said, okay. So, um, I flew to Alaska and I met this guy when I was 18 years old in the airport in uh, King Salmon, Alaska, never seen him before. And I fished for him for the summer and, um, we did horrible. I made, I made, <laughs> I made a hundred dollars that summer. Oh, wow. Well, my plane ticket cost a thousand and I mean, uh, 900 and, and I got paid a thousand. So, uh, I'm like, this is not for me, but he gave me, I was making 10% that year and he gave me 15. He said, come back next year. I'll give you 15. I said, I'll give it a whirl. And then I went back the next year and I got $10,000. And so now this is good. Uh huh. But, but that's, if I made 10,000, how much did my uncle make? So he, right. right. So then I borrowed money from my parents to buy a license, um, $50,000. And I bought a boat in my third year. Um, I became a captain. Wow. And now I've been a captain since I was 20. I'm 37, so 17 years. And um, that's where I make my money. Um, but to, to get back to you and Chattanooga, um, I moved to Chattanooga because Chattanooga is my favorite city I've ever seen in America. Um, I what love, do you like about it? Oh, my goodness. Everything. Um well, when I first moved here five five years ago, the the cost of living was reasonable, but it's gone up substantially. Rent prices have gone through the roof. Um, I don't know what to do about that. 
Um, but I'm a huge nature guy. Um, the people here, this, the people in the South are truly nicer than the people in the North. They're more friendly. Um, I, I ride my bike. The, the Tennessee river is right here. Um, exercise the, the culture in the city for exercise is like, I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, we have caves. I mean, you can paraglide caves. You can be in stand-up paddleboarding. You can be trail running. Um, we have all these healthy outdoor things to do. Uh, we're close to the big city, Atlanta. You want to go see, you know, a sporting game or something. We have our own. We have the hooligans right here. If you want to see something local, right? We're we're just big enough to have a comedy catch and a small comedy scene. I love stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, this it's like the perfect size town. I love it. That's why I started this podcast so I could meet more people in in this town. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. So. Um, and a lot of people discover Chattanooga that way. I have some friends uh, uh, who live on the North Shore, and they moved here from Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. So they decided that Austin was getting too crowded and that it was getting too expensive, and yeah. they were looking for a place that kind of reminded them of Austin but wasn't quite that that big. And they somehow Chattanooga was on their list, and they came to check it out. And I was at the Flying Squirrel uh, one night sitting at the bar, and they happened to be sitting next to me, and and I I gave them the sales pitch. <laughs> I, I told them all the reasons that they needed to, to pick Chattanooga, and, uh, and they did. I got a phone call that said, hey, can you introduce us to a, a real estate agent? We're, we're going to move. And... Uh, and and I did so. Whenever they tell the story, they always give me credit for for why they're in Chattanooga. Yeah, there's so many people coming from out west, California, um, Colorado. Um, Chattanooga is growing leaps and bounds. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it's good now, but uh, you don't want it to get too big. But you you also want people to have freedom and choice where to live. What are your thoughts on um, Chattanooga in the future with growth? Sure. You mentioned that the rents are getting yes. to be really, really high. Yeah. Uh, and full disclosure, so, you know, I just don't want to hide behind a wall. I do have two rental properties. So I also, um, here in Chattanooga, I'm also a landlord. So I, you know, I see both sides of the coin. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the, bad, the bad news for landlords and the good news for renters is that we have an oversupply of, of inventory rental units in Chattanooga right now. And I think market forces are going to drive rents down. Uh, I don't know how far they'll go down, uh, but I, I think that it's inevitable that they will. What's propping up the market right now uh, are mostly short-term vacation rentals. Mm. Uh, if uh, b- Because... Uh, if you can turn a property into an Airbnb uh, a, a, a property, then that that is inflating the value of that property because the value is based not on long-term rental income. It's based on short-term rental income. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at Nashville, for example, they were a huge uh, Airbnb market, and their rents went through the roof. And, and so they basically have, have issued a moratorium on short-term vacation rentals now because they're trying to, to make housing more affordable. And that's, that's really what we need to do in Chattanooga. We've got to build more affordable uh, housing units 
both units that people can rent as well as units that people can buy. Um, I don't know what the balance is. I, I tend to think that if you are a resident and you live in a property, you probably should have some right to, uh, to get income via the short-term vacation rental market. But if you are an investor living in Los Angeles, I don't know that it's good for our economy to let a wealthy person who lives thousands of miles away, who doesn't know anything about our culture, about our community, to come in and say buy 12 houses and just put them out as short-term vacation uh, rental properties. Because that has a negative effect on both our economy and our culture. So, so we're going to have to figure that out. You ask about just the growth in the population and, and, and how uh, we're going to handle that. I think that we have probably 50,000 uh, too few people. I, th- I think that we could grow the population of Chattanooga, say, from 200,000 to 250,000, and we would hardly notice the difference. Uh, but we would have more vitality. You know, restaurants would be full all the time. There would be more ethnic food. Uh, you know, I, I think there are some, some really positive benefits to growing the population. One thing that we've learned through this pandemic is that all of these big companies are telling their employees, you don't have to come back to the office ever. We have now totally transitioned to teleworking and you can work from from anywhere. So if you're a software developer in Seattle or Silicon Valley, there's no reason why you shouldn't consider coming to Chattanooga because we have the number one internet platform on the planet. This is the best place for you to work. And when you take your $200,000 job from California and you move it to Chattanooga, your quality of life is going to really improve. Um, So I I welcome people to come to Chattanooga. I welcome uh, really smart kinds of growth. And and that's what we we have to do. We're sitting equidistant between Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Vanderbilt in Nashville, UT in Knoxville, uh, NASA in Huntsville, Oak Ridge Laboratories in Oak Ridge. We should be a bustling R&D town. There's, there's so much that we have to, to offer people. And, uh, and I, I have to give uh, our Chamber of Commerce uh, some props. Uh, uh, I don't always agree with the Chamber, but they're doing a good job of trying to market Chattanooga as a place for distance workers now. Uh, and, and we're seeing people move here every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be people moving in but keeping their jobs um, elsewhere, that example. Um, as a mayor or just as a human what do you think about um more companies coming to chattanooga for jobs for you know physical jobs that people work here sure so in the past our strategy has been to focus on large multinational corporations volkswagen volkswagen amazon yes and then we put those companies 20 miles away from the urban core, yes. almost to Ottawa, at Enterprise South. We give those companies 
hundreds of millions of dollars yes in tax incentives. And, and incentives yes. to to come here and and while i'm happy to have them i'm I, I love that we have volkswagen i love that we have amazon i'm not sure we're getting a good return on the investment that we've made and i say that from a couple of standpoints first it's the taxpayers of chattanooga and the taxpayers of Hamilton County who are providing uh, uh, a high degree of, of subsidy for those jobs. Yet we didn't negotiate that, that the residents of Chattanooga would get a hiring preference when, when being considered for, for those jobs. So what most people don't know is that not only have we given you know, tax incentives, but that 35% of the people who work at Enterprise South don't even live in Hamilton County. They're from Cleveland. They're from Bradley County. Yeah. They're from Meigs County. Yeah. They're from North Georgia. So I believe that if we're going to give a company an incentive, we should at least get all of the jobs or the vast majority of the jobs. Uh, and, if, and if you can't hire our people, then we probably shouldn't have you come here. You, may, you might want to go somewhere else. Um, I want to change that a little bit. I certainly want us to continue to recruit major employers. But when you look at SBA Small Business Administration data, the sweet spot for job creation in the United States is companies that are four to five years old that have 15 to 20 employees. That's where the majority of the jobs in our country are being created. But yet we don't do anything for companies that size. So what I want to do is I want to have an effort to recruit the 100 largest African-American companies in America, the 100 largest Latinx companies in America, the 100 largest women-owned companies in America. Those companies range at the low end from, uh, of probably $100 million to well over a billion dollars in, in value. Suppose that we recruited three $200 million companies to Chattanooga, and we put those companies not at Enterprise South, not up at Sale Creek as, as is being talked about now, but suppose we put those companies in the heart of Alton Park or East Chattanooga, where people can walk to work, ride their bikes to work, uh, not have to take a two-hour bus ride one way to get to Enterprise South. That's what's going to change this economy. That's what's going to put people to work who need the jobs. That's what's going to get rid of the income disparity that exists currently in our community. We, we've got to be smart about the kinds of jobs that we want to create and, the, and where we put those jobs. Our state our county, and our city have marketed us in the past by saying our people are, will work for cheap. You know, we, we need to quit selling uh, the workers of Tennessee and the workers of Chattanooga short. So even when we win and we get a Volkswagen, we end up paying the Volkswagen workers the lowest wages of any automotive plant in the United States. Is that because Tennessee is a non-union state? Well, it's, that's part of it, sure. Um, but, but when you say to those major uh, companies, you know, come here because we have cheap labor, 
Well, you've already sold out the people. Uh, you, if, you, if you said, come here because we have smart workers, come here because we have productive workers, you're setting those workers up to get paid more money. But when you say from the get-go, we're cheap, then, the, then any sane, rational employer is going to wonder, just how cheap will they go? How low can we get them? And so, yes, we won when we got Volkswagen. It was a great thing. But now we have the lowest paid automotive workers in the United States. And that is nothing to brag about. Is that that's really what it is? Oh, wow. Yeah, we're dead, dead last. You will not find an, uh, uh, an automotive plant that pays its workers less than the workers at Volkswagen make in Chattanooga. Um, what do you think about minimum wage? That- <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't have to. I don't know. Just so, popped in okay. my head if we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's, let's talk about minimum you, wage. Well, you're an, you're an economist. So this is fascinating because yeah. you um, really can understand these concepts. Yeah. So minimum wage, when it was created, was created to sort of establish a floor for uh, for for what workers could could make. The idea was you're not going to get wealthy, but you'll be able to take care of your basic needs. Well, we haven't raised the minimum wage in I don't know how long. So we sit here in 2021, and there is no county, there's no zip code, no zip code in America, not rural Mississippi, not you know, northern Alaska, uh, where housing is affordable on one minimum wage job. So if you get up in the morning and you go work a minimum wage job, you can't you can barely even pay for your housing before you talk about food and clothing and all those other things. So minimum wage, which used to be a livable wage, is no longer that. One of the first things that I want to do as mayor is establish a minimum wage for city of Chattanooga employees of $15 an hour. Now, because you'll have to raise everyone along the pay scale when you do that, we won't be able to do that overnight. It's probably going to take a three-year process to institute a full $15 an hour minimum wage. But that's something I want to do. Because the city of Chattanooga itself, our own local government, has too many minimum wage jobs. 40% of the 3,000 workers of the city of Chattanooga qualify for public assistance. Most people who work for our government have second and even third jobs so that they can get by. That that is unconscionable. It's a it's it's a shame. And and we need to stop that. And as mayor, that will be one of the very first things that I do. Um is that because rent prices went up so high, or is it because minimum wage stayed low that that issue you were talking about is minimum wage isn't enough to pay for housing is 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 the real problem rents are too high or well no the real the real problem is that the wages are too low because as i said there's not a zip code in america where housing is affordable on uh what is currently minimum wage so sure there are places where the rents are in fact very high but the real issue is that the wages 
everywhere are too low when, when we're talking about minimum wage. Now, minimum wage, you have uh, federal minimum wage and, fa- and state minimum wage, I believe. Is that correct? Is so, it- so there are some states and there are even cities that have imposed... That's what I was going to ask next. Can uh, you do a city-wide or, or county-wide minimum wage? Uh, probably not in Tennessee. Uh, our, our state charter uh, doesn't really give cities that power. Uh, we would have to do that at the state level for sure. Uh, but I, I have faith that the, the federal government is going to uh, raise minimum wage during the next uh, presidential administration. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. Yeah. Um, and then the next question, you know, when you talk about minimum wage goes, uh, well, where, where does the money come from? So what's uh, the plan? Like, how would the city be able to afford to um, raise minimum wage for their city workers? We have what's called a strong mayor form of government. Uh, Our mayor puts the budget together, and then the budget is approved by city council. But the Chattanooga municipal budget is an expression of the mayor's priorities. We don't ask the question when we're giving tax incentives to developers or business owners. No one ever says, well, where are we going to get this money from? We always say, oh, we're getting these jobs. So, so, so let's go ahead and give those incentives. The city revenues have, this is pre-pandemic, of course, city revenues have grown 2 to 5% organically every year. And, and, and we don't choose to give the, that money to the workers. We choose to give that money to other people. And so I'm, I'm not talking about a huge math problem where we have to figure out where the money is coming from. All I'm telling you is I'm changing the priorities of the city. I'm changing the priorities of the office of mayor. My priorities are going to be people, families, and neighborhoods. I live downtown. I love that we have a great downtown. Um, but we need a great East Chattanooga. We need a great Highland Park. We need a great Alton Park. And, and so as mayor, I am just rearranging the, the cards on the table so that they work better for workers, for people, for families. And, and that's how it, how it needs to be. Um, what else um, are you interested in doing as mayor? Should we go through the list? Oh, well, there's, there's, there's so much. I mean, we're talking about wages right now. Yeah. That's, that's our number one problem. Sure. Chattanoogans don't make enough money. We have people who come from all around the country to study affordable housing here. And despite the rents that are going up in the urban core, in the downtown area, South Side, North Shore, um, they say, you guys don't have so much of a affordability problem as you have a wage problem. And in, and in economics, the single most efficient way to make something more affordable is to increase income. If you increase the amount of money people have, then, then everything else instantly becomes more affordable. Now, having said that, we don't have enough affordable housing units. Uh, we do need to increase the number of units. Uh, and when we talk about affordability, we're not talking about homelessness. Uh, I believe the number is 40% of all Chattanoogans uh, are housing burdened, meaning that they spend too much of their monthly income on, on housing and related expenses. 
so we've got to build more uh, affordable housing. And we can do that by using things like urban land trust or mixed-use development uh, where, you know, commercial rents can subsidize some of the residential rents that, that are there. There there are so many things that we absolutely need to do. Uh, the Achilles heel of Chattanooga, uh, quite honestly, is our subpar public school system. We have some school systems that are great, but we have many that, that need improvement. Uh, only 36% of the kids in Hamilton County Public Schools read at grade level. And you can't have a bustling economy where everyone is doing well if only 36% of your population only reads at grade level. That is not a recipe for success. So as city mayor, I know that I will not run the schools. I will not be the boss of the school superintendent. But what I have said to Brian Johnson, our superintendent, is, Dr. Johnson, I don't want to be your boss, but I want to be your partner. So when I'm mayor of Chattanooga, I will sit down with you and we will figure out all the ways that we can partner together to make the schools inside the city limits of Chattanooga the best that they can be. And so one of the things I want to do is I want to appoint a person who will be in charge of education policy for the city of Chattanooga. Um, because while we may not run the schools, we, we definitely need to be in the education business. Um, when, we, when we look at changing uh, public safety and the way that we police the community, the way that we, we make our neighborhoods safe, I think we need to start with a blank sheet of paper. One of the things that I'm very much in favor of is a real citizen oversight committee, not an advisory committee where you make a recommendation to the chief of police, but an oversight committee where, you're, where your decisions are binding and you have subpoena power. Uh, Nashville is just in the process of implementing that kind of oversight, and, and I would love to have that here in, in Chattanooga as well. We should look at the underlying causes of crime. In talking to the police department, for example, I've been told that 60% of burglaries are related to uh, addiction problems. But do we ever do anything to treat people's addictions? Do we ever try to get them into rehab? No, we just keep arresting the same desperate, addicted people over and over again, which does nothing for them. It, it, it is a recipe for failure. Uh, why, why do we keep repeating the same policies over and over again? How much of our crime is just related to poverty? If you're poor, if you're hungry, then you're you're more likely to commit crime. Well, you're but, desperate. You got to do what you got to do. Exactly. I mean, the reason that Riverview has a low crime rate isn't because they're of higher moral character. It's because they're not hungry. They're not poor. Uh, if 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 we froze all the bank accounts of the people in Riverview, let's watch and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So so we've got to start addressing the underlying uh, causes of crime and quit pretending that just rounding people up and locking them up is the answer to that. Now, having said that, 
I mean, there we have organized crime in Chattanooga. We have gangs. We, we have people who have chosen to be hardened, lifelong criminals, and, and we have jails for the, just those people. Um, but, that's, but we have way too many people locked up. Oh, uh, this, is, this is a great segue. I think most people would be shocked to learn that on any given day, almost 50% of all of the people in Hamilton County jails are there on pre-trial detention. They haven't had a trial. They haven't been found guilty of anything. They're just too poor to make bail. And, and, and when you look at just the women, that number goes up to 70% because women are poorer than men, typically. They make less money than men. And so if, if half of the general population is there on pretrial uh, detention, 70% of the women in a Hamilton County jails are there on pretrial detention. We've got to quit you know, incarcerating people just because they're poor. Um, so I'm a fan of getting rid of cash bail. Uh, I'm proud to work with you know organizations like Caleb and uh, you know, CCJ. Are you familiar with those? No, explain those. Uh, so Caleb is, is, is just a great group. It's, it's run by, uh, Michael, uh, Gillian. And, uh, uh, now I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm going to mess this up, but, uh, Caleb stands for Chattanoogans aligned for love, equity, and benevolence. And CCJ is concerned citizens for justice. Um, so I'm a I'm a big supporter of the work of those organizations because uh, it just doesn't make sense to to have someone lose everything because they're too poor to make bail. You know, if you can't get out of jail, you lose your job. When you lose your job, you lose your housing. Uh, when you lose your housing, your family gets broken up. So when the handcuffs get put on you. That's what wrecks the lives of poor people. It's you don't even have to get convicted of anything for your life to be ruined. And so cash bail is a really, really onerous thing that we have to get rid of. Um, so that's that's another thing that that I want to do. Um, and then I just want to be more engaged with the community. Uh, I like to say that if I'm the mayor of Chattanooga and you see me sitting behind my desk in City Hall, then, then I'm having a very bad day uh, because I want to be out in the community as much as possible. Uh, as mayor, uh, on a monthly basis, I want to take my whole executive staff out into a different neighborhood every month and go door knocking and talk to people. Um, because people who are struggling, people who need help, aren't always going to be able to come downtown to City Hall or come to a city council meeting. When I've been canvassing neighborhoods and talking to people about our city, I've seen a lot of senior citizens who are living in deplorable conditions. We've got to do something to help them. Uh, so if, if my staff, if my whole team is out there knocking on doors, we're going to be able to meet people where they are. We're going to see how people are living. We're going to be able to find out um, you know, how we can help them. And I like to say that if you are a slumlord, if you're somebody who's making somebody's grandmother live in, the, in these deplorable conditions, live in squalor, 
then you better watch out because Mayor Brewell will be coming for you. Uh, I, I'm going to run every slumlord out of town that I possibly can. I'm, and that doesn't mean that if you are an investor in real estate and you keep your properties up to code and you take care of the people who live there, no, I'm not coming for you. I'm coming for the bad ones. So the bad ones, this is your warning. We all know who the bad ones we are. We know who sure. the bad ones are. They're out there. Um, as an economist, what are your thoughts on universal basic income? <laughs> it's the UBI. It's the trendy <laughs> conversation these days. What do you think about it? Uh, that is a reflection of our economy being less labor intensive, right? So, we're basically becoming such a smart society, such a technology-driven society, that when, when the robots are doing all the work, there aren't enough jobs for all the people. And, and so universal basic income is a concept that says that every person should be guaranteed a certain level of income. And there are cities that are doing pilots around this. I think Sacramento, California uh, has a UBI program uh, where they're paying uh, uh, a certain group of residents. It's not everybody, but they're testing it. They've got like 100 people that they're paying $2,000 a month to as, as universal basic income. Uh, the, the people who are opposed to that say, oh, that's just welfare. You are, you know, you're, you're taking away the incentives of, of people to go out and work. Um, that's, that's not necessarily true. Uh, everything is a negotiation, and, and, and we can structure the program so that there are all kinds of incentives and all kinds of opportunities. UBI isn't there for a person who doesn't want to work. It's there for a person who can't work because the work isn't there. Excuse me. Um, these are the early days of, of UBI. Um, I think the, the jury is out on how we um, uh, might structure that. So I can't say I'm for UBI or that I'm against UBI. Yeah. All I can say is that I'm open. I I'm open to it. I, I was under the impression that UBI was a safety net. So it allows creatives to take a risk to do what they really want to do. It allows artists to go for that, knowing that many artists aren't successful. So maybe I should just work for Volkswagen for my whole life and um, not have a fulfilling life but if with ubi it's like okay well i know at least my rent's getting paid i'm getting food i can go to the farmer's market and try to sell my my mugs and mm -hmm. and i thought that was more what ubi was to give people a safety net for starting a new business but it fails you're now you're not homeless and lost everything that's one version of it. Um, I don't believe that's how it's being done in Sacramento. Okay. I, I, I think it's, it's an anti-poverty measure in, in Sacramento, for example. But yes, it, it is a safety net. The safety net that most people used to have in this country was called the middle class, 
we had an expanding middle class. People could take risks. They could start a business. They could try, you know, uh, uh, a career as an artist. They could do a number of things knowing that there would always be a good paying job for them in the middle class. Well, we have a contracting middle class in this country. And, and if we had an expanding middle class, we wouldn't even be having a UBI conversation. Um, UBI is a function of a failed economy that, that is not producing an expansive middle class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I think the other safety net used to be your family. Right. So, um, yeah, you can live, you can move back in with your parents or, or uh, we'll help you out for a while. Um, but with, with there being, I mean, there's the middle class is disappearing. Um, you're either with your broke family who can't help you or you're with your rich family who you don't even have to work to begin with. So, um, I'm, I'm disappointed to see the middle class shrinking and, uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that's, um, not a sign of a healthy economy, in my opinion. Everyone says that we have two Chattanoogas, a Chattanooga for the haves and a Chattanooga for the have-nots. Now, if you are one of the have-nots, it certainly is a bad situation for you. But when I talk to, to more affluent people, I point out that's not good for you either. Um, because who's going to take care of this permanent underclass that we are creating? It's going to be the people who have money. And so when government needs more money, it's going to come to you. It's going to get in your pocket. So if you don't want to burden your kids and your grandkids with taking care of this permanent underclass, then you've got to work really hard to make sure that we don't have a permanent underclass. We need an expansive economy in you know low-income neighborhoods, uh, we we've got to do something for black, brown, and low-income people. In 1997, the average African American household in Chattanooga earned about 62% what the average white household earned. We've had a series of mayors who've described themselves as progressive, who have have had all of these plans and all of these ideas, and so. After almost 25 years of these progressive policies, today in 2021, and again, pre-pandemic, Lord knows what it's going to be after the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, the average African-American household makes 50% what the average uh, white household makes. So this progress is killing us. We don't need any more of this well-intentioned, progressive, uh, uh, you know, uh, Uh, policies, uh, because there are people who will not survive those policies. Uh, We need to do something different. Uh, and, 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 And again, that's part of the reason that I am running to be mayor, not to do things the way we've always done them, but to do something different. How many years are we willing to be Charlie Brown listening to Lucy's promise only to have the Lucy's of the world yank the football away from us. Um, Stop it. It's time for people to rally, people to vote, and to demand something different. And I want to be that different mayor. I really, really liked your idea of having um, um, some of these top 100 companies um, going into Alton Park, you know, the top 100 African-American company or... Um, I really like that idea you had earlier. I think that'd be 
fantastic idea. There's land there. There's lots of vacant land. Yep. Um, how, what, what can you do as a mayor to make that happen? Oh, uh, this gets me about as excited as, as, as anything. <laughs> Good. Uh, one of the one of the reasons we go about recruiting business the way we do is that the city of Chattanooga has just about a hundred percent outsourced economic development and business recruitment to the Chamber of Commerce, and I think the Chamber of Commerce is a great representative of large corporate America, and when you put the the club that represents large corporate America in charge of business recruitment, who, who are they going to recruit? Large corporate America. So I'm happy to have the chamber continue to do what they do best, but we need to create another entity, um, much like, uh, invest Atlanta is, is, is a model that, that I like that is in charge of other kinds of economic development and economic recruitment. The chamber can play a role in that to be sure, but we should, uh, we, we should be targeting small business there because that's what really is the vitality of a community is it's small business community. And, and, and we've got to, uh, make sure that, that, the ownership of those companies reflects the diversity of our community. That's why I want to target African-American-owned companies, Latinx-owned companies, women-owned companies. It's not because I want to discriminate against, you know, traditional white-owned companies or that I have something against large business. I don't. It's not that we have to do one thing or the other. We need to do all of these things, and currently we're we're not doing that. Uh, I mean, no family sits down to dinner and and only eats mashed potatoes night after night after night, and never considering anything else. And then one day, you know, you know, somebody points to the to the the refrigerator and says, "Mom, is that some meat?" Uh, you know. Dad, are those peas? And, and, and so we've got to, uh, to quit just uh, following the same single path when it comes to job creation and economic development. There is a big, beautiful palette out there, and we've got to go out and, uh, and attract people. Now that I know that, that we can attract uh, Alaskan salmon fishermen to Chattanooga, <laughs> yeah. you know, Maybe maybe you're, you won't be the only one. We can, we can bring a whole lot of Alaskan salmon fishermen to Chattanooga. There's two. Oh, there's two. Yep. Oh, see? Thomas. See? <laughs> oh, man. We're going to have exponential growth here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, what, what, else, um, what else do you want to talk about? Um, any other plan, plans for you as mayor? Any other key points you want people to know about? What I want people to know is that it's time for ordinary people to stand up and be counted. That isn't necessarily about what the government is going to do for you. It's what the government is going to do with you. 
right now we have too many backroom deals. There are things that happen that the ordinary citizen never knows about. Can you tell us one of these backhand <laughs> deals? I'm serious. Is it? Or well, so so it happens a lot uh, with pilots payments in lieu of taxes, where we provide tax incentives for a variety of reasons oh. to companies or or developers. Is that a different than a TIF? That is very different than a TIF. Okay. So, so a pilot is a one-on-one negotiation with, with a business where you say, instead of paying your normal taxes, we're going to let you pay this payment that is maybe, let's say, a third of what your taxes would be. Mm-hmm. And in return, you know, you're going to you know, open your business, you're going to build your plant or do whatever it is that you're doing. Now, the problem with that is that we don't have any transparency in how those deals are negotiated. There's no set of criteria that I can go or you can go and look at and say, oh, I see why they made the decision to give this company the pilot or they they just denied this company the pilot. It's all very murky. Mm. And and basically, it's what you know the mayor and a few people want to do, and and you can make a justification for it. It's hard to hold somebody accountable when there are no rules that mm-hmm. you can hold them to, right? So so we've got to have a truly transparent process for uh, evaluating who we give pilots to. There's something called the but for test. That, that government should only uh, provide incentives uh, where uh, the deal wouldn't get done but for the government you know, doing it. And, and that is a really good standard to, to uphold. But right now, we give, we give pilots to people like it's candy at Halloween. And some kids, you know, remember the whole Charlie Brown Halloween thing? I got a rock. You know, some people get rocks and some people get full-size Snickers bars. Uh, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And, and we can't transparently go and look and see uh, why, why that happened. So if you want to talk about backroom deals where we need to shine the light of day, look at every pilot agreement we have and, and, and try to figure it out. It's almost impossible to do that. Uh, I definitely am going to change the way that we, we evaluate those opportunities. Does the mayor have the power to... Um um, disclose these pilots? Oh, sure. The, the mayor can disclose, you know, the reasons why that happened, mm-hmm. but that rarely happens. Okay. Uh, and maybe it's a lot of work. I don't know. Um, well, we shouldn't be afraid of a lot of work. No, no. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to accuse them of any particular form of skullduggery. Uh, but, uh, if you look at the Regional Planning Commission, I believe there are nine members of the Regional Planning Commission. Uh, four of them are appointed by the city mayor, four appointed by the county mayor. Uh, and I think the head of the regional planning agency is automatically a member or, or something like that. Um, 90% of the members of the Regional Planning Commission are developers. Yeah. So that's kind of like the foxes guarding the hen house. 
And again, I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing a lot of bad stuff, but my observation is is that it's a pretty pro-developer body. And and I don't want to get rid of all of the developers. The, the developers should certainly have a huge voice on the planning commission, but they don't have to have 90% of the voice on the planning commission. We need to have neighborhood association uh, uh, presidents, uh, community activists on the planning commission, environmentalists, um, because those points of view are important too. Uh, so, so don't get me wrong. I'm not alleging that that city government is some kind of Tammany Hall with with Boss Tweed, you know, hold up doling out cash. Uh, that's not that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have a system that's not transparent, that is murky, and it people can't be hold accountable can't be held accountable. Uh, I can't talk. People can't be held accountable under those circumstances. So we need to take a look at how we do business and make sure that we do everything with equity and fairness. Very well said. I also have noticed as a layman, the amount of developers on the RPA and it's convenient. And I've just, I've just noticed that myself. Um, Can you tell me what a TIFF is? Oh, how, sure. How that's different than sure. um, what was the other one? Uh, the pilot. Pilot, yeah. So, as I said, the pilot is a negotiation. Because these with... are these are both tools you'll be using as oh, a man. Oh, yes. You have power to do TIFFs and pilots and, yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the ways I'm going to steer investment to Alton Park uh, is I'm going to create a TIFF district there. And a TIFF is tax increment financing. And that's where you basically take a district, you draw a geographic boundary around an area, and and we say we're going to freeze the tax revenues uh, at this level in that in that geographic area. Then, over time, as as those tax dollars grow, we're going to take the increment, we're going to take the increase in the tax dollars. And we're going to invest it in particular purposes. So what I would do with a South Side TIF, if you will, is I would do brownfield remediation because we have thousands of thousands of acres of vacant land that can't be used because there are uh, pollutants in the soil. Uh, we we have to do remediation in order to to be able to use them. We can take the TIF to eradicate uh, food deserts. We can, we, we, can, we can be the developing authority and put a supermarket in, in a food desert. We can provide better access to healthcare by, cre- by building medical facilities in, in these areas. So, so that's a great way to use, uh, to use tax increment financing or TIF. I actually was the vice chairman of the Atlanta Beltline Tax Allocation District, which is one of the largest TIFs in the Southeast. Uh, It's a billion dollar uh, TIF, and our charge was to increase affordable housing uh, in areas that uh, were adjacent to the Atlanta Beltline development. And uh, uh, it's it's been successful in some ways, and 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 not successful in others, but, but 
but I think overall it's been a good thing. Uh, and so TIF financing is used when you want to address a geographic area. Uh, it's not targeted toward any specific uh, individual business in that area. A pilot isn't about an area. It's about a deal with a business. Um, so they're both tools that, that are useful uh, to government to create uh, incentives for economic development, but they're different tools. Are you, do you happen to be familiar with the Black Creek development? Yes. And um, if I recall, they're using a TIF to build a road up at the Mountain Road. They are. Yeah. Um, is that, so that TIF was drawn around that area to help them? Or uh, it seemed like that company, or the landowners um, of that project were using the TIF uh, um, just to make the road up the mountain. Am I incorrect with that? Well, I, I, I think that they, they, they are, in fact, using it for that purpose. That's part of it. But so let's, let's go back a few years here. Yeah. The area that is Black Creek was not part of the city of Chattanooga. It, it was outside the city limits of Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. The developers of Black Creek came to the city and said, we would be willing to have you annex our development so that every house in, in Black Creek will then be part of the city of Chattanooga. But we need help with a couple of things. We, we would like you to build a firehouse out here so that uh, our homeowners will get low insurance rates because there's a fire hall out here. And we want to develop up the mountain. And it would be helpful if you could build the road and then recoup the money through property tax revenue mm-hmm. and, and, and other kinds of revenues. So it wasn't like it was a one-sided deal. The city got to annex this huge property of of high uh, of high dollar homes, if you will. Very high, yeah, yeah, and and so imagine the property taxes that the city's collecting. That's the part I wasn't aware of. Yeah, was uh, the annexing in um, Black Creek. Yes, yeah. So so that's how that deal got done. It, it's it, it's often portrayed as this one sided thing. Oh, the city, you know, this that developer got got the city to pay for that road. Mm-hmm. Well, but the city got to annex all those houses. They wouldn't be paying city property taxes mm-hmm. if that deal hadn't been done. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks for that clarification. Um, what what else? You got anything else? <laughs> Man, I can I can talk about Chattanooga all day. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, again, when we look when we look at poverty in Chattanooga, twenty five percent. And again, I keep saying these are pre COVID numbers because I'm sure. af- I'm afraid of what of where we really are right now. Twenty five percent of all Chattanoogans lived in poverty. Thirty five percent of our children live in poverty. We have a super high child poverty rate in Chattanooga. I don't want people to get fooled or lulled into complacency because we've got a great riverfront or because downtown is doing well. I want I want voters to understand that 40% 
of our neighbors are housing burdened. 35% of our children live in poverty. Two-thirds of all households that live in poverty are headed by single women. One of the reasons that we haven't moved the needle on eradicating poverty, in fact, you know, we've, we've slid further behind, is that we've never had a mayor who prioritized the needs of single mothers, their children, and their families. I am begging the voters of Chattanooga to do something different. Quit electing the same kind of person who's not going to put the needs of single mothers and working class and low-income people as the number one priority of this city. I want to be the champion of those people. Between the ages of 4 and 14, I was raised by a single mother. I know what that struggle is like, not because I hired a consultant to study it, not because I appointed a commission to look into it, but I sat with my mother at the kitchen table and watched her decide which bills would get paid and which bills wouldn't get paid. We have to do something for single moms and single dads because that's where the poverty is. That is the drain and the drag on unleashing this powerful economic engine that is Chattanooga. And until we have a mayor who is willing to get down in the dirt and, 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 and work with the people at a very grassroots level and figure out ways that, that we're going to bring resources to bear to lift people out of poverty, then we're, we're not going to be our best selves. We're not going to be the best Chattanooga that we can be. And, and I will just say it every day between now and election that Monty Brule will be your champion. I will be the mayor that gets up every day thinking how I can improve the lives of all people in Chattanooga. And, and that's what I want people to know about me. Well, Monty, that's, I think that's uh, perfect to end on. Um, thank you so much for coming here and talking with me. Luke, thank you very much. I really respect that you'd take your time to do this. And um, I hope the people that listen to this find this conversation useful. And uh, I generally enjoy this conversation. Um, it's the highlight of what I do. And um, just thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. And, and I'd be glad to come back anytime. All right. We'll come back. And just for education, you know, I was finding it hard. I was talking with my girlfriend. I was finding it hard to find out when to vote. When is the actual election for mayor? The actual election for mayor, the city election, uh, is March the 2nd of 2021. So early voting will start sometime in mid to late February. Uh, And then the actual election day is March 2nd. And then where can people vote at? Uh, so for early voting, there there would be the usual four places. I always vote early at the election commission off of Amnicola. Uh, the Brainerd uh, Rec Center is an early voting location. Uh, there's a Hick, there's a location in Hickson as well. Uh, but then you just go to your regular precinct on Mar- March second on election day to cast your vote. Sounds great. 
Um, thanks for coming on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Bye. And there you have it. There's my conversation with Monte Brule. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I had creating it. Um, what a story that guy has. That was wonderful. Um, if you like the podcast, please tell your friends. Uh, word of mouth is the best. Uh, second best is you can leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or ultimately, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts. That's very helpful. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye.